All right. Thank you, Connor. Appreciate that. Hey, well, good morning. We're in week two of our series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I thought Pastor Craig did a masterful job last week, kind of walking us through Acts chapters 18 through 20. If you were here for that, the reason we were in Acts 18 through 20 in a study on Ephesians is because that represents the period of time that Paul was in Ephesus. And so we felt it would be super helpful to get to know a little bit about what was happening in the churches at Ephesus, kind of some of the problems they were struggling with, and then compare, you know, that church to ours, and so he gave us some great background. Now, Ephesians as a book has two primary sections. So chapters one through three tell us all the amazing things that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have done for us. In other words, in these three chapters, Paul lays out very clearly who we are, whom God has called us and made us to be, And it reveals our true identity as sons and daughters of Jesus seated with him in the heavenly realms. So the first three chapters essentially tell us uh, what God has done for us. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, that's a hinge verse in the whole book. So it says in chapter 4, therefore, walk worthy of the calling that you've received. So it lays out what, God, what God's done for us and then how we should live our lives as a result of what God has done in and for us. So a lot of times, here's what happens. People will open their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, 5, or 6 and try to live that out, and they're frustrated. And I would, I would argue that the reason they're frustrated is because they're trying to live out Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 without an understanding of, uh, and a recognition of what God has done uh, in and for them that's shown in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So, so listen, trying to live out Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 without first understanding Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is only going to be futile and frustrating. So it's vital that we understand that. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this extraordinary uh, plan of salvation that God has had. Uh, Paul says he's had it since before the foundation of the world. And the first thing that you're going to notice in these verses that Connor read that's so encouraging is that every member of the Trinity has been involved to, uh, has helped to secure your salvation. So we see in verses 3 and 3 through 5 that it's been initiated by the Father. We read in verses 5 through 12 that it's been accomplished by the Son. And then we see in verses 13 and 14 that the Holy Spirit activates it and preserves it, keeps it. So it's no wonder that Paul begins this section with praise. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I want you to notice here that not only are we simply blessed, but we're actually blessed in the heavenly realms. In other words, You and I don't just have a name and a standing here on earth. 
part of what it means to be uh, saved and made whole by Jesus is that we have a standing and a name in heaven as well. It's so important to understand this. And notice too that he doesn't say we're kind of blessed or sort of blessed in Christ. He says that because of Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing that can be good. And so what he's saying here is this, or what I would want us to hear is this, that everything good that comes into your life, that blows into your life and into my life, comes through the goodness of our Jesus. Everything good comes through him. Now, there's a term that's used in this section a lot. So um, uh, five times, in fact, the term in him or in Christ is used here. And this is a, a critical phrase. It really demonstrates the position that you and I have because of Jesus. In other words, here's what I'm saying, and I'm going to use, uh, so by the way, I've recruited my, my good friends, uh, Buzz and Woody, to help me with this today, and I think they were pretty gracious for agreeing to come, don't you? So would you guys just put it up, to, put, put your hands together, sure, for Buzz and for Woody. Now, we're going to come back to Buzz and Woody several times in this message, but I, it's important that we understand what it means to be in Christ. So, because uh, a lot of us, what we do when we walk through our everyday life, we're very aware of our sin, aren't we? We're very aware of our failures. And, you know, it's kind of like they're in our face all the time. And, but what it means to be in Christ is the remedy to that. So what, what's literally being said, um, I'm going to put Buzz and Woody in, uh, in, the, in this jar or in this bowl, right? And then I'm going to put a lid on that. And so when I look at Buzz and Woody now, I don't see just Buzz and Woody because, see, I'm looking through the lens of Jesus. See, because I've been placed in him. So what that means is when your heavenly father looks at you, he doesn't see sin and shame in the same way that you do. It's because it's right in front of your face. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his son because we've all been placed in him. And what's so incredibly amazing about that is that when God, that means that when God looks at you, he looks at you through Jesus-colored glasses, through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of what Jesus has done so that he sees righteousness when he looks at you. You know, because he's Jesus blind, right? He, he, that's all he sees. He doesn't see your sin. And this is how you and I can be in relation to him. Now, I want, you to, I want to remind you because we're going to come back to this. So if you watch the last few Toy Story movies, you know that uh, uh, Woody and Buzz, right, were best friends. But if you watch the first Toy Story movie, they weren't friends at all. In fact, they were vying and competing for the affections of a young boy, right? And so they saw themselves initially as enemies, enemies who eventually became best friends. And so what we're going to see today is that, to, that the Toy Story story is also the story of the church at Ephesus. And not just the church at Ephesus, but a huge problem that was front and center in the early church anyway. 
Now, there's a term, and, I'll, and I'm going to come back to what that was in a minute, and we'll come back to Buzz and Woody as well. Now, there's another term, technical term, that's used here. In fact, it's used three times just in these first two chapters, and it's, it's the term predestined, predestined. It means, the word predestined means to, to choose or to decree beforehand, and he says that uh, God chose us beforehand. Uh, and so the question here is, who is us? I mean, who is Paul writing to? So, see, often when we approach the Bible, we approach the Bible asking a really good question. And the question that we ask is, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to us? But I'd like to recommend that good Bible study starts with asking an even better question than that. That we need to ask the question, what did it mean to them? What did it mean to their church in their day? What problems is Paul addressing? What's he trying to do in writing the letter that he's writing? So uh, when Paul wrote this letter, we have to ask the question, what were some of the problems his original audience was facing? Because when we fail to ask that question, what we do instead is we impose um, our own assumptions on a text, bending it and distorting it to fit whatever our theology is. Now, a huge problem in the early church, not just in Ephesus, but throughout the book of Acts, is the mingling of two different ethnic groups. You have Jewish believers and you have Gentile believers. And these ethnic groups were so different. Their, their backgrounds were so different. They struggled again and again and again to be on the same page. They often disagreed. And you see this throughout the book of Acts, just over and over and over again. It's such a huge issue for the early church. So you see this in Acts 6. You see it in Acts 10. You see it again in Acts 13. And yet again in Acts Acts 15. One of the things Paul is trying to do in Ephesus is he's trying to help Jewish and Gentile believers to get along. And this is very clear in chapters 2 and chapters 3 of the book of Ephesians. He's telling them in chapter 2, look, hey, God's put the two of you together on the one cornerstone, which is Jesus. He's addressing both those groups directly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, really important to understand that, right? He does it very clearly. So, for example, in Ephesians 4, when Paul says these words, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit because there is one body, there is one Spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, and there is one God. He's saying all of that because he's addressing two different groups of people that are struggling to get along. He's not speaking that into a vacuum. He's addressing an action situation. 
that's occurring in the church at Ephesus, which is these two groups exist. There are Jewish believers there and there are Gentile believers there, completely different ethnicities. And, um, and he's talking to them. And what I want to point out is that he's not just addressing these two groups in chapters two and three, but he's also addressing these two groups in chapter one. And I think I can prove it. So I want you to notice in verse two, it says, God chose us. Well, who is us? I mean, is that a reference to individual Christians? Is that a reference to a group? Uh, and he goes on to say this. Um, yeah, okay, who is us? Uh, so here's my point. I, I don't think that God has individual Christians in view here at all. I don't think that does uh, very, I don't think that serves the book very well. In fact, um, here's what I would say, that the us here in verse 2 is Gentile believers. So God is looking at a group of Gentile believers and he's saying, look, God chose us. And then look at verse 11 in this chapter. He says, in him, we were also chosen. That word also is very, very important. He's addressing a different group. Now he's addressing Jewish believers. And I can prove it because look what Paul goes on to say. He goes on to say uh, that he, in him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, if you've studied the Gospels, you know that the first people to believe in, in Jesus were Jewish. And he's simply articulating that here. He's saying, and, and, and he's trying to make it clear because the Jews are in a position where they're like, what is going on? How did we end up, how did we end up in the same faith with all these Gentiles? Like what is happening? So Paul's trying to comfort them and he's saying, look, the God that we serve, he works out everything in, within the conformity of his will. He's not surprised that Jewish and Gentile believers, people of different races, different colors, different backgrounds, God's not surprised that all those different kinds of people are in the church. He, he predestined that. He chose that. He chose for the church to look like that even before the foundation of the world. And I just think that makes this a beautiful, beautiful love story. So what Paul is doing in this section is he's, he's uh, talking to Gentile believers and he looks at them and he says, look, God chose you. God chose you as Gentiles before you chose him. And then he turns to the Jewish brethren in the room and he says, and God also chose you. What is he doing? He's beginning to build a case for why it's so important that these two groups of people learn to get along. It's so important. He's not just talking to Jews and Gentiles in chapters 2 and 3. He's also doing it in chapter 1 as well. And so he's saying, look, before the foundation of the world was laid, God knew that Jews and Gentiles were going to be part of one church. 
incredible. And, and in fact, he goes on to say that, uh, you know, we're all going to be part of that one body. Now, usually when I hear a Bible teacher open their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 like we are today, they kind of just gloss over verses 11 and 12. Like Paul's just kind of repeating himself. Like he's talking to the same group of people and he's saying God chose you and then, hey, yeah, and you were also chosen. No, no, God is not, Paul is not addressing one group of people. He's addressing two and it is very, very important to understand that. And here's why it's so crucial. So if a Bible teacher is lucky enough or fortunate enough to go to seminary or Bible college, every one of those people, including me, because I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, right? Every one of those people are trained in something called systematic theology. Now, before your eyes glaze over... Uh, it's really important to understand this. So let's do some heavy, be, I want you to be willing to do about five minutes of heavy lifting with me so that we can figure out what's really going on here. Okay, now systematic theology is a way of, of looking and examining the doctrine of the Bible in a way that categorizes it and tries to help it, help it make logical sense. Now, in our day and age, there are only really two primary forms of systematic theology. One is Reformed doctrine or Calvinism, and the other is Wesleyanism or Arminianism. Now, listen, I can already see some of you starting to nod off. So, listen, I'm not even going to define what those two groups are. The only, thing it, the only thing we need to do is realize that whatever, whichever one of those systems someone is trained in, that's how they begin to, to look at the Scripture. And sometimes that becomes a problem because sometimes what folks in these two camps want to do is they want to impose their theological grid or view on a Bible verse instead of letting that Bible verse speak for itself. So whether you're somebody's you know, choose their teeth on reform doctrine or someone choose their teeth on Wesleyan doctrine, it kind of creates a prejudice for those folks. They don't, they don't mean for it to. They, they think they're teaching what's in the Bible, but they're just imposing something on those verses that wasn't meant to be there. Now, so people from a reform tradition they love Ephesians 1 because of this word, predestination, predestined. God chose us before we chose him. See, that word fits their system of theology really, really well. But listen, here's what I need you to know. The word of God is living and active. The word of God can't... Look, it's not meant to be held captive by a theological system or a theological grid. In other words, the Bible wasn't written to serve Calvinism. The Bible wasn't written to serve Arminianism. The Bible was written to change people's lives. 
It's far bigger than any of, than either of those things. So I just want to point out that God's word can't be relegated to any attempt to systematize or categorize it. I'm telling you that I believe God's word has to speak for itself without being bent or distorted by any system of theology. Now, here's why I gave you all that classroom background. So one of the resources that we are intentionally pointing you to, if you're in a group or you're going to go along with us in this study through Ephesians, is a resource in which if, uh, in the book of Ephesians, which is taught by a teacher that I'm a huge fan of, that I highly respect. His name is J.D. Greer. And J.D. Greer brings a reformed tradition to this text. In other words, he is a Calvinist. He tries to sidestep that as he's bringing this up, but he really can't. And uh, here's why. So, and listen, we're offering this resource because 9.5 times out of 10, if J.D. and I open up a Bible version, we're going to teach it exactly the same way. Uh, and so, so I respect his opinion immensely, but, but unfortunately, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of those 0.5 times where I don't agree with his presentation, and I think this is a win for the church. Well, how's that a win for the church? Well, because you're going to hear my perspective live, and then those of you that want to dig in and get a different perspective can go and listen to J.D. teach it, and then you can... So then that, what, here's why that's such a win, because then you're digging down deep into Scripture and not just taking my word for it, or you're digging down deep into Scripture and not just taking J.D. Greer's word for it. And I think one of the things Christians need to learn how to do is disagree with one another respectfully. Listen, J.D. Greer is an amazing teacher. He's a better teacher than me. You know how I know? Because he's the one on Right Now Media, not me. <laughs> Fair enough, right? So I have all the respect in the world for him, but I just, I think he brings his theology theology to this text and presumes upon it. I think he forces this text to say something that it is not saying at all. Remember, we ask the right question when we ask, not what does it mean to us, but what did it mean to them? What did Paul intend for the Ephesians to understand when they read these verses? Listen, they'd never heard of Arminianism. They'd never heard of Calvinism. Those things came centuries later. So it's just important to kind of contextualize all that, right? And to kind of understand it. So here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that while the word predestination, uh, well, let's do this differently. I'm telling you that this is a corporate election, not an individual election, I'm telling you, so think Israel. When God made his covenant, he didn't make it with an individual. He made it with a whole nation. He made it with the nation of Israel. That's corporate election. So when he gave the Ten Commandments to establish that covenant, it was given to a whole country, a nation of people, right? In fact, after Paul, Paul talks about his understanding of predestination in Romans chapters 9 through 11. 
And, uh, and listen, to be clear, I'm not telling you, some of you don't care, but many of you do. I'm not even telling you there's no such thing as individual election. Because in Romans 9 through 11, Paul begins to talk about election. First, he talks about election in terms of a community, a nation, Israel. That's the community part. But then he begins to talk about two brothers. And, and the case that he makes is that God actively chose one of those brothers and actively rejected the other one. And then he goes into this diatribe, of, and you know, and who are you to argue with that? Because he's God and, you know, you're not. I, I think a case can be made that the Pharaoh of Egypt, you know, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, I think a case could be made that God actively rejected that Pharaoh. In other words, he chose not to choose him. I think you can make a case for that. I'm just telling you that is not what is in view in Ephesians chapter 1. That is a corporate election, not an individual election. He is telling two different ethnic groups of people about the mystery. In fact, he uses that word. Because you know why? Because the Jews were scratching their head going, what am I doing surrounded by all these Gentiles? How did this happen? And Paul's like, well, it's a mystery. Who knew? But that's God's choice, right? He works out everything in conformity to his will so this is an opportunity for us. Pull out J.D. Greer's resource from Right Now Media. Listen to his message and then dig into God's word for yourself to figure out what's really. Look, it's not important to me that you agree with me. It's not important to me that you buy J.D.'s party line. What matters to me is that you're digging deep down into God's word and trying to figure it out for yourself and wrestling with what God is really saying and not what you think he might be saying. This is a big, big deal. And notice too how God demonstrated, how Jesus lived this out. Look at verse 7. It says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. In other words, what he's telling us is that our freedom, then he goes on to say the forgiveness of sins. So the forgiveness of sins was given to every one of us in this room through the spilling of Jesus' blood. And that makes sense. You know why? Because, so it isn't that, sometimes people will ask me this question. They'll say, well, why couldn't Jesus just forgive everybody? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to die on a cross? That doesn't make any sense to me. Listen, when Jesus died on a cross, he was, he was doing that in accordance with the way that life really works. It's not the exception. And you prove it every time you eat. Let me give you an example. So for you to live, every time you sit down at the table, something had to die in order for you to live. It could be a chicken, it could be a cow, it could be a duck. And, I, and some of you might go right now, no, 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 I'm a vegetarian. Guess what? For you to live, whatever put, was put on your plate had to be separated from a vine or a root. It had to die so that you could live. So Jesus, when he died on the cross, is only doing spiritually what we demonstrate physically every single day of our lives. His blood, it was necessary for his blood to be spilled. Think about it. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, what did God do? 
he, he sewed together animal skins to cover their nakedness, their shame. That means that in order for Adam and Eve's shame to be covered over, animals had to die. See, it was a precursor to the Jewish sacrificial system. That for sin to be covered over, for people to be given life, there has to be a death. It's the whole circle of life thing, right, that Lion King and wants to talk about and all that. So, uh, so this is just a great opportunity. In him we have redemption through his blood. What I'm telling you is this. Your salvation was purchased. Your freedom was given through the spilling of Jesus' blood. Now, there's an old story that circulated for more than a century about one of our presidents. He happens to be my favorite president. It's a story about Abraham Lincoln. It might be apocryphal, but for uh, about a century and a half, this story has been told. And I'm just going to tell it to you because it makes a good point to our text today. So, Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market and there he noted a young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest bidder. So he entered into the bidding, and he won. But when he approached the young woman, he could see the anger, the bitterness, the resentment in her eyes. I mean, rightfully so. Auctioned off his property? Are you kidding me? And he could imagine, really only imagine, what she was thinking. You know, another white man is going to buy me, use me, and then discard me. So as Lincoln uh, and she uh, walked off uh, the auctioning platform, he then turned to this young girl and said something that was totally unexpected. He said two words to her. He said, you're free. You're free. Yeah? Yeah? What does that mean? She replied, it means that you're free. Does it mean that I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, it means that you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, she asked, that I can do whatever it is I want to do? Yes, he said, it means that you can do whatever it is you want to do. And then she said, does it mean then that I can go anywhere I want to go? And he said, yes, it means that you are free and you can go anywhere that you want to go. And this young woman said to him, then I want to go with you. Then I want to go with you. Now, while this story may be urban legend, I can tell you a story that's just like it that's true. Jesus Christ has paid the ransom of his shed blood to set you free so that you can go where he goes, so that you could do the things that he would do, so that not just so that you could be with him, but so that you could behold him and in beholding him so that you could become like him. That's our Jesus and that's what he's done. And one more thing, really, that's really important. So I said earlier at the beginning of our talk that every member of the Trinity has participated in, in this amazing salvation, right? That the Father initiated it, that the Son, um, you know, uh, served it, right? That he, uh, and then finally, look at the Spirit. Let's talk about the Spirit's role here, and this will bring us back to Woody and Buzz. 
in our illustration there. So he says, uh, verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, this uh, tells us two things about the Holy Spirit. First of all, He says that in the spirit, we are sealed, right? So it isn't just that that we're placed into Christ uh, by Jesus, right? Then it isn't just that we're in him. Then what happens is this happens to be Tupperware, so it can be sealed. Now, what happens when you seal food? Well, you preserve it, right? It's fresher than uh, food that, so in other words, he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit is coming to seal you, to preserve your salvation. This is really important. And I want to remind you that um, Woody and Buzz weren't always best friends. At first, they didn't agree. They didn't get along. And so the toy story is the story of the church at Ephesus. He's talking to these two groups of believers, and he's saying, look, you have one God. You have one Father. This is one body now. It's a new day. Quit pining for what used to be and get along with one another. Because I chose before the foundation of the world to to bring Gentiles into my church. I chose before the foundation of the world to bring Jewish believers into my church. So bear with one another. Look, you know what he would say? He would say, hey, look, look, guys. He wouldn't say this because they, they didn't have Toy Story back then, right? But he would say, look, I want you to look at, at, you know, Buzz and Woody. And I want you to be just like them. Yeah, they didn't get along at first. They were vying for the same young boy's affection. But, but you go three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine movies in. I don't know how many movies they've done even, right? But you go all those movies in, they're best buds, And so what he's arguing is, look, you need to become best buds. You Jews, be grace-giving with these Gentiles. Like, you know, you guys just need to be grace-giving with one another. And I mean, Paul says, look, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He's a a down payment on your salvation. Uh, so, So, yeah, that's the sealing piece, you know, for Buzz and Woody. And then finally, there's the deposit piece. He says, not only are we sealed by the Holy Spirit, but he's deposited, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, we all get a down payment, don't we? I mean, if you're going to buy a house, what do you do? You, you offer up earnest money. It's a down payment. If you're going to buy a car, you leave a down payment on the car. Why do we do that? Well, because it's a way of saying, look, I'm going to see this through. I'm going to pay the full purchase price. This is going to happen, and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And so what Paul is saying is, look, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. He's been placed inside you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit now. Not only have you been sealed uh, in your salvation by him, but uh, he's a down payment. He's guaranteeing that God is going to come back for you. The Holy Spirit is a down payment in your life. I mean, isn't that just incredible? Now, listen, every once in a while, you hear a story, and a story just perfectly illustrates something or speaks a message. I want to just tell you a story that I think perfectly illustrates the message here in Ephesians chapter 1. This is by a woman by the name of Mary Ann Berg. She wrote a book called The Whisper Test. 
My wife will know this well because my wife is a speech language pathologist and they've moved way beyond this uh, whisper test idea. But I want to read this to you. So here's, this is her words, her story. She writes this. I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started to go to school, my classmates who constantly teased me made it clear to me how I must look to others. I was an ugly girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. I couldn't even blow up a balloon without holding my nose. And when I bent to drink from a water fountain, the water always came through and spilled out of my nose. When my schoolmates would ask me what happened to your lip, I'd tell them that I'd fallen as a baby and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to me to have suffered an accident than to have simply been born this way. By the age of seven, I was convinced that no one outside of my own family could ever love or even like me. And then I entered second grade and Mrs. Leonard's class. I never knew what her first name was, just Mrs. Leonard. She was round and pretty and fragrant with chubby arms and shining brown hair and warm dark eyes that smiled, even on the rare occasions that her mouth didn't. Everyone adored her, but no one would come to love and admire her more than I did. Every year, our teachers would administer a hearing test to their students. In our class, each student left their desks one by one to approach Mrs. Leonard, and she would have them cover one ear while she whispered something into the other ear, and then she would have them repeat, whisper back to her what she had said. As usual, I was last, but all through the testing, I wondered what Mrs. Leonard might say to me. I knew from previous years that she whispered things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? My turn came up and I approached her desk. I waited and then heard the words that God had surely put into her mouth, seven words that would change my life forever. She whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Listen to me. When our God looks at people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their skin color, he whispers in their ears, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little, bo- my little boy, right? It doesn't matter whether they are black, whether they are white, whether they are yellow, or whether they are brown. God is offering a salvation that is way bigger than race or ethnicity. And he chose to offer you and I that salvation before the foundation of the world. You know what that makes it? It makes it the love story of the ages. It makes it a love story that's gone on since the very beginning of time, if we can even talk about time that way. God's love, the shed blood of Christ poured out, not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, but for all humanity. Incredible. God's love demonstrated before the very foundations to the world were laid. So here's what I want to do.
I want to invite up our praise team. We're going to sing and we're going to worship, but I want to tell you why we chose this song this day. It's so important. We're going to sing together about the love of God. And that's what Ephesians chapter 1, this extraordinary salvation that God has offered to people from every ethnic background. And I just think that's so beautiful and so amazing. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to sing together and marvel over the incredible love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each unique part they play in our salvation. Papa, I did the best I could. May your word penetrate hard hearts. May it sink with what you're really saying and not what we want it to say. I ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>